0: Welcome to the bio breakdown podcast I'm your host Chris Vanity this week we're joined by co-host Randall hello everybody producer max hi guys and our special guest Stuart Wells hello everyone happy to be here uh, so Stuart could you please tell us like a little bit about yourself and then we'll kind of get into how you became interested in science and biology
1: Thank you Chris um, so I am a a fourth year PhD student at the University of Arizona, um, getting my uh, PhD in wildlife conservation. I've worked in this wildlife conservation field though for 20 plus years in various um, capacities. And just uh, four years ago, I, I left a position as director of conservation for a, an NGO uh, to complete this PhD. Uh, one of my dreams in life was to complete this. I'm, I'm, I'm unconventional in that regard because I'm an older grad student. Um, I'm also an African-American, which uh, is also a, a small, uh, not making a pun here, minority of uh, science, science uh, folks involved in science, especially in wildlife conservation. So I don't know if I can give more detail about what I do. Right now I'm doing research, uh, looking at an at uh, trying to develop a management plan for a a critically endangered red squirrel called the Mount Graham red squirrel. There was only about uh, maybe a little over 100 left in the wild, and there's various reasons why that happened. And my area of research is looking at uh, behavior um, and also physiology, basically trying to detect indices of, of a physiological state by by monitoring behavioral activity and then using that information and working backwards to develop a management plan to, uh, to have the best opportunity for reproductive success.
0: Awesome. Um, and now you've got, you've got the audience salivating, right? They're going to be stewing yeah. over that all episodes, right. <laughs> right? right? Because I mean, that is a hot button issue, but uh, you know, did, where were you born? And then slash where did you grow up? And then how how did you find yourself all the way here is what we're going to do. But, you know, where does this interest in science come from, right? So you say, like, you're an unconventional graduate student because you're a little bit older, but obviously you have to have some kind of life-driving passion for that to even be an option.
1: You know, it's always a, a question that I ask myself, but I also ask that question about, help people get involved in this, in this field of uh, wildlife conservation, or just in, interested in science in general. And, and I've done a number of talks about this over the years. And, and I asked the question, so how did, how did you get involved with, with science? And it, it kind of seems to be that there's a, a, a common denominator. And it's, it's people or, or kids that were the ones out there turning over rocks and wondering what the heck that was that just moved you know, to hide itself, and I was that kid, um, I grew, I was born in Indiana, so I'm I'm officially a Hoosier, although no one's, no one's ever been able to tell me exactly where that term came from or what it means, but that's, that's what I am, but I, I also spent uh, a small part of my childhood in Missouri, um, so I grew up by pretty, fairly large rivers, the Wabash River that ran through my hometown. Oh, yeah. In, in Indiana and then the of course the, the Mississippi uh, that runs through st. Louis and gave me plenty of opportunities to spend time uh, on the on the river shore looking for rocks and fishing and you know whatever else that would would be found there you just it was just an abundance of, of uh, wildlife that you were able to see uh, that I was able to see growing up and and I think that's where I started to get an interest in in science, or at least trying to. I didn't really, as a kid, I didn't say, "Well, this is science," <clears throat> but I do admit that I I thought I, I wanted to be an entomologist when I was nine years old. I, I told my dad I wanted to work at the Smithsonian as a researcher studying in, insects. He says, ah, "Well, ah. you can do that, <laughs> you know, if you want to." Um, but another interesting part of that story is as I got uh, through, began to get through high school, I talked to my uh, high school counselors about careers. And I said, I'm really interested in in uh, insects. And their advice for me, I don't know if this was because I was an African-American or what, but he said, well, you know, one of the things I think you could do is become an exterminator when you get out of high school. <laughs> so, so, that sounds great. Yeah, I was I wasn't deterred by that advice, but I was a little confused by it because I had a different idea of, of studying insects than I think he did.
2: Yeah, um, not trying to
1: to kill them. <laughs> right, right. I want <laughs> yeah. to I, I understand them before I kill them. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so I, but I still maintained my interest in science through high school, and you know, I probably had a a pretty good working understanding of uh, the orders for insects and I was really pretty confident that that's what I wanted to do and I was sticking with my my goal of working at the Smithsonian as a researcher through high school took all the biology courses um, found out that there was this this other aspect of science that I didn't care for so much and that was the math but I took that I needed to (laughs) I took the ones that I needed to and and just enough to get the credit for my degree um One of the first classes that I took in my field of science was at NAU in entomology. So I was like, I'm on my track here. I'm going to take some entomology courses and learn how to be an entomologist. And it turns out the instructor for that class was a a retired Smithsonian researcher who studied beetles for his entire life. And he he'd retired from the Smithsonian and was teaching at at Northern Arizona University, which is in, in Flagstaff. It's and he, crazy. yeah, it was kind of neat. And I thought, well, this is the person I need to talk to because this is where I want to work. And then as part of the class, he talked about what his research was. And it was the, uh, he studied the the genitalia of dermestid beetles. <laughs> very so, specific. <laughs> it, it was a very specific research topic. and And the more he talked about his career, the more I thought I really didn't want to do that for the rest of my life <laughs> or to be stuck in that kind of a, you know, very narrow niche of, of research. It was still interesting, but I don't know if you guys know what a domestic beetle is, but if you've ever had, um, you know, set a skull or, or a, a bone out in the in the field and you come back to it and there's a bunch of beetles on it for some reason or another yeah, they, yeah. that are cleaning the cleaning the, the remaining mm-hmm. tissue off of the bone, mm-hmm. those are domestic beetles. That's what they do. Uh, and they're tiny, most of them. They're called carrion feeders. Uh, but, but to study the genitalia of domestic beetles <laughs> is, a, is another level of tiny. <laughs> and I, <laughs> wasn't, no I wasn't sure that I wanted to do that. So I, I, I switched from entomology to mammalogy after that, uh, and zoology. Actually, it was the the focus, vertebrate, vertebrate, um, biology, bigger things, you know, like elephants, for example. Um, yeah. And <clears throat> and that's what I ended up spending the rest of my, my bachelor's degree at, uh, at Northern Arizona University was in zoology. Um, and, you know, you get to the end of your four-year degree uh, at the time for me was, okay, what's the job going to be? And I would talk to people about what my degree was at zoology—and they said, "Oh, so that means you want to work at a zoo, right?" And I said, "Well, no, that's not what zoology means. It's not exactly what that mean—that yeah. term <laughs> means. But yes, I, I do work at a zoo, <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're um, kind
2: of right. But... So you yeah,
1: have—you're right no, But I found that that term is often associated with working at a zoo, even though it means, you know, some—it's yeah. a whole level of focus
2: but easy easy to think so where were you like time frame wise like how like how old were you at this point in your
1: oh so yes yeah, so i i moved from indiana um when i was 15 my dad was a was a, a physician and he was retiring um to arizona so at the time i wasn't real happy with him because i was just starting to you know get into high school and I have uh three older brothers who were like these superstars in sports and everything, and they had all finally graduated from high school. So I was not I wasn't necessarily in their shadow about everything. Uh, uh so they had left and I was just going to be the only, you know, Wells in high school and not be the little brother of Chris and Charles and JK Wells. Yeah. <laughs> so uh... um so, but then we moved, which in, a, in, in retrospect actually was even better because I was in a different area altogether. Uh, and so I went to high school in Arizona and, and graduated from a high school called Washington High School. And then I went to um, a couple of years of, of uh, college at a uh, community college called Phoenix College, and then I got accepted to NAU. So that's that's where that story picks up, and at that time I was 18. Actually, I take that back uh, because I had spent a couple of years at community college. When I started at NAU, I was uh, 24 years old. And I probably should interject a a portion of my career that I don't really always include. And that's um, for a little bit of time before I went to NAU and after I got out of high school, I had I had had gotten a job at a uh, prison counseling ward as a uh, uh, counselor for criminally insane people. Ooh, so that sounds it, interesting. It, it, it is in the sense that you know, my, ultimately, my career is, uh, looks at behavior and working with. Uh, I guess the. The political term, correct term now, is not criminally insane. It's it's mentally disturbed. Um, But at the time, they they were described as criminally insane, and and this was a maximum security um, psych psych ward for the uh, the prison system in Arizona. So it was all all of the all of the prisons would send any of their um, inmates that had been found to be mentally unstable to this facility that i worked at as a counselor and we would work with them to get them to a point where they were mentally stable so they could go back and serve their time at whatever facility they were sentenced to or they would be considered unstable and they would serve the rest of their time at our facility
2: that's pretty nuts did you have like any history in like counseling to to like land that that gig or did you how did that come about
1: uh, it's interesting I I did have some counseling but uh, part of the part of the job um, is they, they sent me to an, a, a year of training at what's called a count a, a correctional academy and the training was to to learn how to to counsel so I wasn't a psychiatrist I was a counselor who worked with a psychiatrist so I would do caseload um, observations of the caseload and then write a report and submit that to the psychiatrist who was assigned to the facility and he he would based on our notes about the individuals he'd make recommendations for treatment or you know other things.
0: And huh. if you if you spend any time around Stuart today, he'll he'll use the same techniques on you, uh, Uh-oh. <laughs> for better for worse. Uh, just just be aware. No, no, it's so yeah. The, that's not true. What
2: do you mean by that? <laughs> um, I mean
1: you might not know you're doing. No, <laughs> what I'm really
0: saying is that uh, the the like behavioral analytics. Uh, obviously, something that you're skilled at, and uh, you know you yeah. you do you do that uh, still today. Um, He's right. It's one of the things <laughs> that I I've definitely found interesting
1: about that job was that um, and is that what what you had to become good at was recognizing behavior and also recognizing when to ask about what the the kind of behaviors that you were seeing. Um, in order to get more information about the origin of that behavior, so yes, mm-hmm. I think it you know because I was kind of in this uh, crucible uh of dealing with that at, at a pretty intense level, it became part of my my um, interaction with yeah, people yeah. probably from that point on i think sounds like a good uh, you know a good life skill to have
2: like you know it can be very advantageous and very you know could be good for social settings as well. I think that's a good thing to have in your repertoire.
1: (laughs) You know, it's helped me with uh, the area that I work in with animal behavior, which I'll probably probably talk about a little bit more. Um, Because uh, humans, human behavior is is so uh, masked. It can be so masked by, you know, voice and other things. Uh, but animal behavior is a little bit more straightforward. I mean, there's certain things that animals do to mask certain conditions, but for the most part, you can get a really good insight in, as to what's going on with that animal by, by observing them. Whereas humans have this other way of using, you know, other cues to 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 uh, deceive you as to what they're really what yeah. they're really feeling, mm-hmm. and that. Yeah. And, and that um, getting training in that area helps you recognize the nuances that are going on um, with humans number one and two it made it a lot easier to interpret subtleties of animal behavior um, later on in, in my career.
0: Wow. So that was uh, your um, the job you had before you started working in zoos, right? That's correct.
1: Yeah, that was before I actually went to a four-year university. I worked at uh, this uh, facility. It wasn't a, it was a maximum security. It wasn't necessarily called a, pr- a prison. It was called a treatment center. But it was located right in the center of the city here. Not many people know about it. It's still here. Uh, and I worked there. And then uh, after, um, I think I was there for three years, uh, then I got accepted to NAU and started my um, my bachelor's degree in zoology.
0: So, was there was there a, uh, an event that happened or something that really made you decide that you wanted needed a change, or was it just kind of like uh, organic? It just came up.
1: There was an event that happened that made me realize. There was two things actually. Um, one of them was that. I I was, um, it was very stressful, that environment, as you can imagine. First, you know, you check in because you have to go through the double maximum security gates that are all electronically controlled. Boom, you know, you hear one shut and then the other one opens and then you shut that one. So that was my work day for all those years. And, and so just walking into work was, became kind of started you on a high stress, you know, path and then i would i would go to the um the ward that i was the main counselor and that was also another double doors you know maximum security entrance and exit once you're in there you're in there and 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 you are the the difference with the uh, the, the mentally uh impaired folks was that part of their therapy was that they weren't locked down all day um so you, they weren't in You know, they weren't locked into their room. They were actually out walking around on on the ward floor.
0: And as a counselor, I
1: also had to be out walking around with them. And in fact, having, you know, counseling sessions either, you know, in in an office or or just sometimes impromptu counseling sessions as I would see them and notice that they might be disturbed and try and strike up a conversation and see what's going on. Um, so you're surrounded by about 40, um, inmates who are at various levels of, of, um, Distress? Well, some, some were violent,
0: violent, violent offenders. Ah, okay. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, well, actually, I could, I should say, I can't even imagine how stressful that would be, um, to, to be in that situation. Yeah, of so your day
1: starts by getting locked, you know, clocked, uh, opening opened up into these this environment, and then you're you're locked in for the eight hour. Actually, had ten hour shifts, um, and you're 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 open in an open area, vulnerable to anybody that decides you know you're the person they want to attack today, and you have to be out there with them. Uh, so yeah, it was stressful. And in fact, one specific incident that happened to me was um, it wasn't it wasn't me that got attacked, but it was one of the my, my colleagues that was doing counseling for a new a new person a new, what we call intake uh, patient. And he was doing the counseling for that person in a side office when I was working out on the floor at the time. And um, what, what happened is I, I, I saw that he, he was being um, attacked by this, this new person. And I responded to try and help him to, uh, to stop that incident. And the other, there's, there's also guards that are assigned to this unit, but only one. So there's one guard uh, for this unit of about 40 inmates. And there were about four or five counselors um, two of them, were, two of them, me and the other person that was doing the interview were out on the floor, what we call the floor and the other, other two were inside. So this, this, what we call a code happened and I started to respond to this code. And then as I got to where he was, um, one of the, one of the folks on the floor, one of the other inmates, inmates, patients, um tripped me (laughs) Oh oh, no! (laughs) because as i was responding to this incident it caused me to you know basically fall um and then i i was i was close enough still to the door of where the office was that i could i could jump in from somehow jump from my knees into this office to help my my colleague uh control this person that was attacking him but in that process i got pretty pretty injured um so i mean
0: i can hard. i can mm-hmm. imagine that's like uh you know that's 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 wild man oh well, geez it, it all happened
1: in a blink of an eye but it's that's one of the things that kind of came home to me is that in that yeah. very instant you know with going about my regular day and then suddenly we're in this situation were the, were the injuries bad or were they were you out of work um, for a little bit or I was off of work for um that ended my career actually the injury so Dang, um, man. but in but in retrospect that actually best. opened up it it uh, it opened up the whole career for me to get you know focus up focus what I wanted to do in science so and the more I think about that path uh, that I was on, it was a good career, but it was also going to be a very stressful career and the mm-hmm. folks that i knew who had worked in that for many years had a lot of stress related anxiety in their life so i don't
2: yeah i have yeah. any
1: regrets for that happening but it was actually a good a good uh, time for that to happen
2: yeah this is that doesn't sound like something you'd want to do for like 10 15 20 you know 30 mm-hmm. years like
1: no no it yeah. was it was actually good money at the time i mean back then you know these organizations weren't run by the private sector, they were all uh, state-run, so it was a nice, it was a good state, state employee job and everything.
2: Yeah. But, uh, so, so
0: well, what were you going to say? I
2: was going uh, see, I was going to see what you were going to say.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right, so then, okay, so you, you've done, uh, when that came to pass, uh, so to speak, and you finished your degree... Then you said you uh, got a job at a zoo, right? I did. Um, so you know, there's this time when you get your undergrad
1: degree, or if, if that's or your degree. Um, and I had a bachelor of science degree. You know, you, you, you get your diploma, and you know, you congratulating yourself for finishing that degree, and then you go, okay, when the when are the calls going to start for this job that I'm going to get? Keep in mind, this is back in 1986 that I got my bachelor's degree uh, from Nau. So that expectation that you know those that person is just going to give you a call and say, "Hey, we got this six-figure job for you, and we're looking. You're exactly who I was looking for. Um, Realistic or not, you do kind of think that might happen." It's possible. Uh, it didn't happen. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> so, so, so um, you know, I left Flagstaff, um, came back to Phoenix, um, looking for a job. I, I went to a, a small zoo in there in Phoenix uh, on the uh, on the west side uh, that they, they had about, about four animal keepers. And I just walked in. I said, I'm looking for a job. And they said, well, we only have four keepers that are full time and that's it. So, you know, fat chance. Uh, But one thing this person did do is he gave me the name of the the mammal curator for the Phoenix Zoo. He said, why don't you give him a call and see if he's got anything. And And again, I was still having pushback about becoming an animal keeper because I thought my degree was much more than, you know. I was actually interested right, right. in research but I'm thinking yeah, I want yeah. to be a zoologist not an animal keeper but right um, yeah but, which you know I've since learned that animal keepers are 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 very uh, knowledgeable and skilled people and but I had a different I didn't understand what that job was be right. honest with you yeah it sounds and, like pretty open ended so yes yeah and um, I did contact the the curator at the Phoenix Zoo, and he said, "Well, we have a job for you. Uh, when can you start?" I said, "Tomorrow." He said, what's, uh, <laughs> "What's the job?" I said, "Well, we here right now. We, yeah, we've, <laughs> we've got an opening as, uh, in the commissary. <laughs> so, uh, and also, uh, for yeah, for, so commissary means food, you know, prep, food prep. Uh, and yeah. that's that was the how the zoos." Uh, operated at the time is you know i was at least being hired as an animal keeper but a commissary keeper was my official title which meant i I prepped the food for all of the animals at the zoo
0: yeah Uh, i mean we'll, we'll get uh further but i mean that was i i i interned which is not the same thing as a paid position i know that as a as a animal husbandry intern at a, at a facility and it was awesome but you end up being kind of like a glorified lunch lady for the animals yes. you know and yeah. uh there's i mean it's a very necessary very very important job but uh yeah th- there should be a lot more respect paid to people in that profession because there is kind of a stigma against it as you mentioned before mm-hmm. But those people end up being very knowledgeable and and very skilled at their jobs. Oh, absolutely! And nowadays, you know, to
1: even get a foot in the door, you have to have a degree. Uh, back then, when I was looking for a job as an animal keeper, it's like, can you uh, can you lift a shovel and a rake? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and that was the you know primary criteria. And If you had other insight, that was just a big bonus. But they weren't going to pay any different.
0: Uh, <laughs> So I always
1: make jokes like that.
2: I work yes. in the restaurant industry. We're always like, "Yeah, let's bring a, a white van to the city, roll up the door and be like, "Can you cook the hot dogs?" <laughs> yeah
1: we're when we're busy. Yeah, so yeah. you know you you kind of face your you know you you get a different opinion of yourself. Uh, but I have to say that working as a commissary, One thing I can tell you for certain is that I know what every single animal eats in a zoo, (laughs) how much and why. (laughs) That's actually
2: pretty useful, I'm sure,
1: if you're in the field. You would be surprised um, how how useful that information is. And, you know, some animals can't process food of a certain size. You know, they can't take in a food that's got too much of a vitamin B or not enough vitamin B and all these other aspects yeah, yeah. of husbandry you don't really think about. So, you know, the more I have thought about it over the years, that is, I think, a very good place to start.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, but what's happened since then is that's become a career. People go into zoos saying, I want to work with nutrition. Now they call it nutrition services at most zoos. So instead of it being the person that just chops up as many carrots as he can in five seconds, you're now, you know, you're now trained to understand what the nutrients are for that diet that you're, you're composing, you know, and, and why that animal needs them. So it's, it's different than it was when I started, but it's still a very important position. So yeah, I did that, get that job good. as a keeper, uh, 1986, seven is when I started, uh, at Phoenix Zoo. And it was a it was about a year when I finally there was a position that opened up as a regular animal keeper and it was in this area that was amazing for me it was called the African veldt <laughs> uh, yeah. so and now they call it the savannah but because uh, no one knew what velt meant when <laughs> so they, they realized well we should we should switch the name to savannah um, but yeah, these were all, you know, uh, giraffes, zebras, wildebeest. Well, we didn't have any wildebeest, but um, we had just about every African species or animals that I worked with, you know, gazelles. Um, and cheetah were in that list of animals that I was responsible for caring for and Um, And another one, the Arabian Oryx, was one, although it's not African, it just happened to be on that, what they called strings at the time of animals that I had to care for. So it was just this whole other experience of not just preparing the food for these animals, but also being responsible for the daily care and and health uh, of all of these different species that many I had read about, but I'd never, some I had never, you know, seen before
0: right and and some of these animals were of, of conservation concern right exactly and and
1: um, the thing about that job um, for me was it helped to solidify my interest in in conservation especially wildlife conservation it also gave me an insight into how zoos can play a role in that um, and how I could as an animal keeper, Play a role in that. One one example is the Arabian oryx, which uh, is a really interesting story. Arabian oryx were were found um, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, they used to be in a, in a, a large number of Arabian oryx. Uh, after World War II, the development of uh, of machine guns. Started to devastate these wild populations. And part of the reason is they, why they were hunted so widely is that Arabian orcs kind of look like unicorns from the side. They're this pure white animal. They have these, you know, about three foot uh, horns that are, if you look at them from the side, it looks like it's just a single horn. And so the, the lore was that these were the, the, you know, the origin of the unicorn. So they were, they were prized uh, as a kind of a imbu- imbuing people who ate them or obtained or that horn with the powers of the oryx. And the oryx could go for a year, you know, not eating, uh, not drinking any water. And I, and I say that because they could get most of the moisture from the, the grasses that they ate. And they had a very specialized kidney uh, in order to allow them to do that. But um, back in 1956, there was a study done looking at, you know, several species of endangered species around the world. And one of them that was uh, discussed in this study was the Arabian oryx. And that kind of prompted this organization to start a project almost, it was almost five years later, 1960, 1962. To try and save the Arabian orcs, because that that report that was done back in '56 said there might be, you know, maybe 100 left in the wild because of these these big hunting expeditions where they would round them up, chase them down with uh, with vehicles, and then get them in a the cornered area and then just shoot shoot them. So their numbers were just dwindling down to nothing. Um, and, and this. This group called uh, fauna International devised this this plan to try and catch the last remaining orcs in the wild. And they searched around the world, really, to find a place to put these animals once they caught them, if they were going to catch them. And Phoenix Zoo was approached at the time to be the first place to get any of these orcs if they did catch them. And that was because the... the, the the climate in Arizona was very similar to the climate that they lived in in Saudi Arabia.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, so Phoenix Zoo was just starting; it was like 1962. They hadn't even opened their doors yet, and they were approached by this uh, this contingent of folks that were looking for a place. And they said, "Yeah, sure, we'll take 'em. We haven't even opened our zoo yet, but we'll we'll do this." <laughs> You know, and because of that, they, they were actually offering some money to, to develop a holding facility for them. So that, that was one of the main reasons. But it's also a really cool opportunity for the Phoenix Zoo to get involved in this this um, global, really involved uh, program. Because it involved a number of countries, actually, when this project was called Operation Orcs. Once it got underway, it involved Africa and it, it involved uh, the U.K., in saudi arabia and a few other folks to to do this expedition and try and catch orcs and then bring them back to the united states and then
0: place them at the zoo well that's that's uh, insane uh, and i i think it's important to point out and we'll, we'll probably talk more about this as we go forward but uh, uh currently there's a lot of uh, negative stigmas about zoos and Uh, negative perceptions about zoos um and you know a lot of people don't know about the conservation work that these a lot of you know the aza the american zoos and aquariums uh association right association organization one of those two uh get involved with and 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 they really uh responsible and and, you know have saved some species that would have otherwise gone extinct or you know they have operations where they collaborate with people on the ground where these animals exist uh, in their natural habitat and you know I think it's important for us uh, you know you have experience in the industry but you know us as, as scientists and science communicators to really point out how much good they actually do um also kind of tied to the the pandemic that we're experiencing you know the the tiger king series has gone viral um i've never seen anything take off like that has it probably even beat making a murderer and the show is like incredibly entertaining like i've watched it twice i've watched the series twice (laughs) it is incredibly entertaining and the memes are out of this world but that is what a lot of people perceive like a zoo as, right? So these I think it's important to point out the difference between like a what I would call like a wildlife park, uh, not even giving it the credit for being a zoo, and what like an AZA accredited zoo is, and, and how different those things are. Well, it's, it's a really good uh, point to bring up because
1: um, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, as you mentioned, has an accreditation process. Um, and the zoos that are members of that have gone through accreditation. They have this, it's an, an enormous list of regulations and requirements that they have, to, they have to adhere to in order to stay accredited. One of them is the number of staff that they have per species of animal, how, how they pay their staff, what are, the, what are the academic requirements of the staff that work there. Do they have a, a, non, a vet on, you know, on the grounds? Do they have um, safety precautions that are in place and followed? You know, do they have training for their, their uh, animal care staff? Is the training adequate? How often is it updated? And the list goes on and on. You know, do, are they involved in, in now, um, actually in the last decade, one of the, the uh, uh, requirements it's man- mandated now, it was initially just encouraged, was that they actively participate in field conservation. And not, uh, just, uh, not just say we're a conservation organization because we house draft, but how are you participating in field conservation to- towards the recovery of a species or sustaining of a species? And you have to demonstrate that. And it's mandated now that 6% of your gross goes towards that each year. I think it's six percent. So that has resulted in zoos co- uh, contributing over a billion dollars in the last decade to to active field wildlife conservation <laughs> programs across the globe. Um, wow, I was wow. not
3: aware of that. That's that's pretty great that they're doing that. Or yeah, being, uh, made to do
1: that. Well, and it's it's it wasn't. Uh, I mean, it's something that zoos have inherently had the ability to do from their from their uh, modern inception i should say and it kind of one of these things that flows from their what they have done for years which is manage you know animals and keep them alive um, and being but one of the things is that they're able to vet you know viable conservation programs across the globe because they recognize the need you know is this organization doing good for this species well, zoos are in a good position to be able to, uh, accredited zoos are in a good position to be able to um, recognize good conservation. Um, But it hasn't always been that way. I mean, zoos, you know, have a history of being menageries and just, you know, sending out expeditions to collect the the most number of tigers. Uh, And unfortunately, that legacy has followed zoos around today, whereas most people think, oh, they're just, they're just, um, you know, keeping these animals there for, for profit, you know, for entertainment, whereas that is kind of an antiquated, um, standard of accredited zoos. But as you mentioned, Chris, this, uh, those, these, um, reality shows that show them the ugly side of animal husbandry, these, most of these are private owners of exotic animals, um, but that, for some reason, that's the stigma that it sticks with zoos still. And as a person yeah. that's worked in zoos as a conservation uh, conservation biologist, I can tell you that the one of the single most challenging things to overcome is people's un, uh, insight, or what they believe to be the insight, as to how zoos function and why you know why those animals are in zoos, and, and you know, you can you can talk about how your conservation efforts help all of the local species that are endangered, and how much money you put into that, what kind of research goes into the facilities you develop, and 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 then they'll say, "Wow, I didn't like what you said, R.J. I think or Max. Uh, I didn't know zoos did that." And 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 I can tell you that 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 conversation happens over and over. And mm-hmm. the, the learning curve for the public is, isn't diminished by the information that you provide to them Yeah, as a result of the legacy.
3: It seems like it's like best, like if you look at the bigger picture, like in order to have like these animals to put in, in zoos, we would think it'd be like in the zoo's best interest to like, you know, be active in the conservation of these animals. So, you know, down the road, the business model can, can still work. If you look at it from a strictly business perspective, and obviously the people that work at the zoos, if you go go down the chain, I'm sure people care about the animals as well, so it seems like pretty natural for them to adapt these. Like it, all, it all makes sense looking at it well, right now, but I didn't know they were doing that.
1: Well, and, and other, that's a, another um, that's a good point you just brought up because um, there's still a lingering belief that the animals in
0: zoos are coming from the wild. Right, and and I think I didn't mean to like cut you off, but I just kind of wanted to lead to a, a specific point, which you might also be trying to make here. But like a lot of the animals in zoos, right, if they're allowed to be bred, because a lot of them are actually on like contraceptives, right, but they keep track of all of the the genetics of of these animals, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's correct, and and as in accredited facilities. Right. So whenever you hear these people, I'm just bringing this up because it was it was um, it was on the Tiger King series. And it's actually something one of my friends said to me. And I found it to be a common perception is that if an animal's of conservation concern, of course, it's good if there's more of them. Right. And so that's kind of how I guess these private zoos or wildlife parks get by and saying that oh we're helping uh, you know this animal's endangered but we breed you know tons and tons of them well i mean that animal doesn't participate in any kind of conservation purpose whatsoever and the genetics are not monitored so they're just breeding whatever can breed uh to make money uh but it, when you think about actual zoos and stuart you, you have a lot more um experience in this than i do but Actual zoos, everything is, you know, <laughs> it's like, if they allow the animal to breed, it has the most genetic importance uh, of all available potential breeders, right? And then, uh, as we talked about, you know, a lot of these facilities are involved in getting those animals reintroduced or at least maintaining a healthy population if the opportunity to be reintroduced or – or uh, Put somewhere else would arise. Uh, would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, there's some there's some components of that
1: that are important to to bring out. One is that um, what they we have what's called a species survival plans SSPs and many animals that are in zoos most animals that are in zoos are are managed under a species survival plan. And that has some very rigorous uh, requirements. One is that the genetics are are carefully maintained and and monitored. Uh, The number of animals held in accredited facilities is monitored and managed. Um, And translocation of any of these animals is also guided based on the genetics. And, And important too is that there's Nowadays, there is no monetary exchange of, for an animal that goes, that goes to a different facility, except for the cost of transport. It used to be, when I first started working in zoos, you know, zoos were, were kind of in this business of, you know, if you, get, if you get this important animal to breed, I mean, when I say important, at the time it meant it's one that other zoos wanted to have, like a tiger or an unusual tiger subspecies, if you were to get that animal to breed, then you could sell that animal to another zoo that wanted to obtain that animal. And you could sell, you know, a tiger for $70,000, right? So it was, it was a, it was a, um, a commodity breeding much like what's happening with these private, private organizations now, but as zoos became more um, woke to use a term. Realize- <laughs> <Let's>, hey, hey, <laughs>
0: let's peel that back. Let's not use that term. I don't like that term. We'll say no. enlightened. I, I, really don't like the term woke, no, so we'll say audience guys.
1: I, 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 agree with you, but I also am, you know, it's important to recognize that that it is, it was a, a very difficult for for zoos to embrace that idea that we're going to send an animal to this location without any kind of compensation. For it and so if you, if you think about the magnitude of that decision which happened in the you know, in the 80s began to happen in the 90s more and now it's pretty much a, you know uncommon to buy an animal um, unless it's sold to the private sector that way then uh, you, you know that's that's taking away a, a, a large component of how zoos made their money back in, in the day right? So now they, they have to be operating with a different way of in, getting money into their organization. This is a catch-22 for zoos, because there's so much pushback about having animals on display. But they ha- in order to do conservation efforts, especially support field conservation, they have to have an excess of funds to give to those, to contribute
0: to those projects. Right, so you got to... For, I mean, it's not the same thing, but you got to get butts in the seats, right? Basically, you know. Right.
1: And so, you know, there's been suggestions. Well, couldn't you just have a virtual zoo? Like, uh, yes, you could have that, but you aren't going to have any people coming to it. (laughs) Uh, You know, why do you have to build a new exhibit every year? Well, because... I, I, you know, these are things that I wrestled with as a person that worked in zoos for many years, seeing, you know, someone drop $25 million to building a new elephant enclosure and try and think, well, how is that, how do we reconcile that with the amount of money that could have gone towards, you know, the conservation of that species in the wild? And it's difficult, you know, directors of zoos, they're wrestling with this every day because they know if they don't update their facilities, you know, make them better, more nat- you know, more uh, species-specific, more adequate, then people are going to have issues with them seeing those animals in those enclosures that are in- adequate, and they aren't going to come to the zoo. It means you aren't going to have funds to support your conservation efforts, and you also have to pay your employees. And so, you know, I think uh, animal keepers are probably highest qualified, lowest paid professionals anywhere.
0: Right. And um, yeah, you cannot discount the skill and passion of those people. I mean, I've seen it for a short period in person myself, but, and, you know, we're going to keep saying you know more about this, obviously. But uh, it's important, I guess, and to break down what you just said, that zoos are really kind of trying to straddle that line of entertainment, but one of the few entertainment. With a good like motive, right? There's no such thing as altruism, but you know, pretty close to altruism, right? So, uh, you know, and that's a very difficult thing to do, um, to to m- maintain kind of an upward swing and how. Uh, inviting the people you are how entertaining you are um how to manage all of that while still contributing to these projects that you're invested in um and and a lot of those projects people don't know about until they hear about them um so that that's something that i'm really glad that we brought to light uh here in this podcast oh um, yeah
1: it's it's a very difficult situation that zoos are in because um they're tasked with providing an updated facilities, uh, providing accurate conservation information about the species in the collection. And also, there's an expectation that they are, you know, to be directly involved with with field conservation. And, and the AZA has carefully defined field conservation so that zoos can't say, well, we have a, we have a you know, a, a rhino, so we're doing conservation because we have it on display. It is, it's not that. It's very specific. You have to be supporting or directly involved in research with the preservation, the sustainability of a species in its natural habitat. So I think I was wrapping up um, before we took a break. I talking about transitioning from being a commissary keeper and working with um, exotic species, um, including several African species like cheetah, Um and lions, um, rhinoceros, gazelles, and so on. One of the animals that I talked about was the Arabian orcs and Operation orcs, but that's not an African species. It just so happened that the zoo got involved with that Operation orcs back in 1962. Um, and, and I talked a little bit about the Arabian orcs being kind of uh, exploited in the wild because they, uh, uh, the folks thought they, if they captured and ate or had portions of the Arabian orcs body, they were imbued with these magical powers that the Arabian orcs had because they thought they were a unicorn or the origin of the unicorn. And they also had these amazing abilities to survive in the desert habitat that they were lived in uh, for months, sometimes a year, without actually drinking water. They could get most of their moisture from from the plants that they ate. Uh, but more importantly, the Arabian Oryx was the, a model for conservation efforts of zoos, um, that zoos could be a, a global partner in conservation. That project uh, started in 62 and, and the Phoenix Zoo where I worked at the time was the only place that held the Arabian Oryx. But very quickly, uh, in fact, at, before this operation orcs got underway, they decided that what their plan was to bring this these orcs that they captured to a zoo, uh, breed up to a number where they could they could uh, begin to reintroduce these animals back into the wild. It was actually the first time that it had been uh, dis- discussed up front was that here's this whole conservation plan. It's to get uh, breed these animals, make sure that they're uh, genetically viable, and to get up to a a large enough number that are are born in in the zoo facility, but to identify where they're going to be reintroduced up front in the beginning of this project, and then uh, initiate that reintroduction project when they had enough animals to do do that. This is the first. Uh, the only other time this really had been accomplished was with uh, a, a bison in this country. Uh, but you'll see that the management of bison was a little less, uh, was not an international effort, number one. It was just in North America. Uh, the Arabian orcs was this international effort and involved uh, the U.K., involved uh, Saudi Arabia, Africa, um, United States, and several zoos, in each of those locations, and and different facilities, the the reintroduction facility in, in a place called Harassus in Oman was um, this huge area that was set aside set aside basically one of the uh, uh, one of the first protected areas for an in- introduced species, uh, so that they could put these animals back there once they were ready to reintroduce them. And the other part of the story is that the Arabian oryx actually went extinct 10 years after the first ones were brought to the Phoenix Zoo. It went extinct in 1972 in the wild. There were
0: none left in the oh. world, in the wild. So, so that's, started, hmm? well, I was going to say that's just like a perfect example of like an, a species that was saved, like saved, set, re- grabbed from the brink of extinction and saved in zoos. Which is pretty awesome.
1: It is, and and what's really kind of more interesting or neat about that is that there's a there's status for um, animals um, that's been developed by the International Union Conservation of Nature and other organizations like Fish and Wildlife. And that is, uh, they're either critically endangered, you know, extinct, critically endangered endangered threatened vulnerable so on so the case of the arabian oryx is the first species that was extinct in the wild and then went from in da- uh, critically endangered to vulnerable its current status uh, and as a result of this whole breeding program that started in 1962 so it's a really a perfect example of what zoos and organizations like zoos can do to help um Sustain, actually bring animals back from extinction, if, if possible.
0: Perfect, right? And then, so were you like directly involved with this project, or did you find yourself involved with other projects of similar veins? Or,
1: well, I, I was, I was intimately involved with the orcs program because I raked up their crap every day. <laughs> As close as you can I, get. <laughs> and and gave them, hey, one of the one of my coworkers um, uh, was asked during an interview about what she thought the animals thought of us, animal keepers. And her response was, they think we're crap eaters. <laughs> <laughs>
0: we're
1: harvesting it <laughs> <We, them> again. <laughs> because we're we're harvesting, we feed them, and then we harvest this stuff that we we drop on the ground. So. <laughs> they must think we're crap eaters. <laughs> I, I, I get it. I get it. <laughs> yeah, it was a great. It was a great, and I always uh, it changed the way I thought about my job. But, um, but I also had a very vivid um, image. Uh, actually, experience was to load up uh, about seven oryx that we had raised uh, were born at work at the zoo where I worked, and we had raised them up to an age where they could be. Uh, transferred back to the wild, and, and the reintroduction program started in 1982. I was working with the oryx from '87 to '91, um, to 90, and in and, and, and 1988, we sent a shipment of seven orcs to uh, San Diego, and those each of those animals were destined to go back to the re- to be reintroduced into the wild. So that I, I have this. Um, this clear memory of helping load those animals into the, the, the transport vehicle so that they could be released back to the wild. So that was one first, one of my first impressions and also the importance of how zoos can play a role in conservation. It, and it was early. This was Zoos hadn't quite transitioned to being active conservationist, conservation organizations at the time. It must I, have been a, a good right. moment for you. <laughs> it must have been a good moment after like four
3: years of like keeping working at the zoo and like keeping yeah. care of these orcs yeah and then like your fruits came to fruition where like you're reintroducing back them reintroducing them back into the wild and you're saying bye to them was that a was that a good moment for you
1: it was but in retrospect only because i i know that uh, I was I was aware that this ORCS program we were involved with and these animals that I cared for were part of a reintroduction plan and they had been so bef- you know they had been reintroducing them about four years before I started as an animal keeper but um, my involvement in actually you know catching these animals up and creating them and then putting them on the shipping container knowing that they were going back to the wild. Was really yeah, my first yeah. experience that, into you know these animals that I had cared for and made sure they were healthy and were breeding genetically, um, viably. Um, we're going back home basically. Uh, so that was that was definitely a, a big moment for me. And uh, before that, it was more of a peripheral. You know, like I mentioned, I rake up their crap every day. <laughs> and <eat their> pay. <laughs>
0: But yeah. I did know
1: I did know that the program was going on. I didn't become quite as um, intimate with Operation Oryx until much later in different positions in the zoo. But yeah. I, you know, as as a keeper, I would only been there for about a year of being involved with that. It was like, wow, this is kind of a cool thing that the zoo is doing, and Phoenix Zoo is the the organization that, that started this program. That is very cool. Um. So that and and one other thing, um, stepping away from the uh, operation orcs for a, a bit is another animal that I worked with as a keeper was the uh, uh, the cheetah. And you know zoos are organized in ways where there's several animal keepers. Uh, I think Phoenix Zoo might have 70 different animal keepers now, and and each of those areas requires a certain number of staff to service and they're broken down into what we call strings and on that string it might be a variety of different animals some zoos are taxonomically divided and some are you know are, are organized by um, mammal versus vertebrate and so on but but ours was uh pretty loosely organized by uh, by region you know africa and then we had we threw in some things like oryx, you know, because nobody else was going to do it. Uh, But the cheetah was one that was held with that, that uh, region, African region. And it was an animal that I worked with every day and it was kind of cool. I didn't know a lot about cheetahs when I started working with them. But one thing that we, we we had, that was a bit of a notoriety is that Phoenix Zoo was one of the first places that had had cheetahs born um, in the, in the uh, 70s, um, cheetah births weren't very common. But uh, well, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was
3: gonna say that, that's super awesome.
1: Yeah, so we had uh, we had cheetahs at our facility that were born there. and But then when, the, when I started working with them, there hadn't been any cheetah births for almost 10 years. Um, mm. And no one knew why. And so our population was getting older. Uh, and as a keeper there, you know, at the time it was like, well, we just we just manage them and we, you know, we keep them alive. But I was kind of curious as to why they weren't reproducing. I didn't really, and no one seemed to have a good answer for that. There was a lot of anecdotal information, you know, about how to get them to breed. Uh, some mm-hmm. facilities would say, well, you need to you need to get the cause the males to fight. And that causes the female to you know come into estrus and that mm-hmm. didn't seem that didn't seem to be a sustainable strategy
0: <laughs> to me. uh, right. so you mean that like rural bar strategy <laughs>
1: yeah yeah <laughs> you
0: know so these, these it was and, and you could see
1: that, that that maybe that was some of the origin of some of these things that were going on Somewhat's the way you need to walk, walk a female in front of a male group, and then, you know, if she stops in front of them, then that's the one you should put her in with. Uh, there's some issues about sociality that, you know, if you were wrong about that and you put them together, the male could kill the female because cheetahs are very territorial, at least the males are, but they don't really interact unless the female's receptive for breeding. And if you put them together at the other times than that, there's a huge amount of uh, aggression. And and often that leads to injury and death. So you know if you you couldn't really guess. And so at our facility we didn't want a chance putting them together. So we weren't even trying to get them to reproduce. But I, as a keeper, I was just kind of curious. And also as a zoologist, I thought, well, you know, I should do research on this and and try and apply some um, some science-based sort of understanding to this problem instead of just uh, anecdotal um, applications so I I set up a uh, observation program of behavior uh, just trying to capture the kinds of behaviors that's, that signal that the female is uh, receptive for breeding I couldn't really do this all by myself so I, I enlisted enlisted this group of volunteers who were really interested in cheetahs mostly they were interested in cheetahs because they're fascinating they're fast you know they're kind of cool but um yeah. they they were willing to work with me to 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 do this uh behavior study um and these volunteers I uh, at one time I had about 30 of them they would they would show up twice a day every single day for an hour at a time and do observations on you know the the five or seven cheetahs that we had um i had to develop a training program so that the the data they were collecting was going to be reliable so i developed these videos of the behaviors that they would see and then i tested them make sure that they're recording the behaviors correctly had to develop an ethogram and then teach them how to do you know, check marks on this. We didn't have digital stuff back then. So they had to write, you know, all of the check marks correctly. And some of these behaviors would happen like three behaviors in within a second. So I had to come up with a way that they could score these quickly and accurately and watch up to, up to five animals at a time. They were amazing because they did, they did really well with that. I started that study in 1988 with cheetahs. Um, started just collecting this behavior data. I really didn't know exactly what I was going to do with it, but what I was trying to do was see if there were certain behaviors that changed in frequency uh, over time, and then and and see whether or not those those particular behaviors were in, in, indicative of estrus. So this was just looking at behavior. The only way I could know that was, you know, talk to these other facilities about what what kinds of behaviors were they seeing. When the female was receptive for breeding. And I got a few uh, hints, you know, rolling, they'd start urine marking more, they would walk around more, they'd vocalize, they would, they would not vocalize, they would lay down more often, they would not urinate. So, so some of some of this uh some of this anecdotal information wasn't very conclusive. Um, but I had to put it all into my data. my my check sheets just in case and began collecting, you know, uh, the occurrence of each of these behaviors that people were suggesting that you watch for. And what my goal was is to look at this over time and see whether or not some of those behaviors increased in frequency versus, or or decreased in frequency and some kind of a cycle.
3: So were these mainly the female cheaters you're looking at, or was was it both male and female?
1: Well, I looked at males and females just because i i I knew that um, the females were going to be the indicator, but in some cases you you to get a, a an indi- indication of of um, receptivity, yeah, you might yeah. need to look at how the males respond to the female uh, olfactory in sense. and so. I would track both of them just because if I got you know through with doing you know a year's worth of data and I didn't have males at all, I'd have nothing to go by as, yeah. as far as comparison goes, so it just made sense to track all of the animals that I had uh, but I tried to avoid the I tried to avoid the mistake that a lot of uh, uh beginning researchers do, and I was a beginning researcher, which was to collect everything and and hopefully sort it out at the end because that leads to serious issues. Um, So what I did was I I started the observation and and did an assessment of the kinds of behaviors I was collecting and seeing early on, and looked at uh, this this, uh, function called uh, true factor analysis to determine the variance, uh, the amount of important behaviors, behaviors that were making up most of the changes in the data. And those were the ones that I was able to focus on for the next uh, five years. Of the
0: so, so, so just to clarify a couple of things: estrus is when the female is receptive to breeding, right?
1: So, ex- estrus um, is
0: when uh, um, when she's going to become receptive to breeding.
1: She, yeah, she's she estrus is is preceded or it's it, it's an ovulation is preceded. right. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's
0: it's so. when. So you, if you can keep track of that, you know when the female is going to be receptive to breeding. This is what I was trying to say.
1: Right. Uh, one of the challenges is, though, that there's a spontaneous ovulation and there's induced ovulation. in Right. Animals. And spontaneous ovulation means that they will have ovulated and are ready to be pregnant, right, at the time of breeding. Right. Whereas induced ovulation means that they are prepared to be to ovulate but the breeding process is necessary for them to actually ovulate
0: right. in the case of awesome. like
1: lions for example the female needs to be bred about 60 times and then there's this uh, copulatory neck bite that supposedly causes a physiological response and causes ovulation to occur then then the egg will be present and she'll get pregnant
3: after 60, after, 60 times
1: That's that's not specifically counted at 60, but as as high as or more than 60 times. Wow. And because of the reason for that is there's the the induced ovulation is dependent on stimulation of nerves along the reproductive tract, and that stimulation of those nerves is caused by these little processes that are on the reproductive organ of the
0: male. I mean, I think gotcha. uh, that's, uh, you know, like, uh, I think, I think everybody useful. knows exactly what we're saying. Um, okay, thank you for saving me on that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so so it's a little bit different in animals uh, than it is, well... Human beings are animals. I don't want anybody to think. I don't think that. <laughs> it's a little bit different in other animals, I'll say, than it is for us. And each species is different. And so that's kind of grappling with that of, of how do you manage that? How do you manage that in a captive setting but for the benefit of the species as a whole? And you really went in uh, into that, and, and and that's really good. Was the, Did this uh, project really come out with any important results both for – you know, um, managing the spa- species in captivity, but also for yourself, did it kind of put you in a different mindset? Did it give you opportunities? or How did that work out?
1: So, um, yes and yes. The, oper- the It gave me a different mindset because I started out looking at behavior. And about the time I was finishing, well, I didn't actually finish this study, but after about a year of this study, this group of researchers just happened to be traveling the country looking at a physiological component of why cheetahs weren't reproducing. Because only about 1% of cheetahs held in and in, in managed care had ever reproduced at the time. So a very small percentage of the population was reproducing. And that was why there was such a, I, I didn't realize that when I first went into this. I didn't know how, what extent they were non-productive, reproductive. Uh, so this group of folks from the Smithsonian, uh, researchers there at the time was called NOAA Center. They were all uh, reproductive physiologists and therioingologists. Therioingology means just the study of the morphology of of um, gametes, re- reproductive gametes, such as sperm and eggs. Um, they were traveling around doing research on all the zoos that were held in uh, accredited facilities to see if there was something physiologically wrong with cheetahs that were in zoos that was keeping them from reproducing. And they happened to, um, the last, the second to the last stop of the 42 facilities they had gone to was the Phoenix Zoo. And they, um, in the process of me working with them and bringing cheetahs up for them to do the physicals on, we started talking about the research that I had started on my own with the behavior and they had actually, because they were at like the last zoo, they had come to the conclusion that it wasn't physio- physiology that was causing the problem. It was something going on with how they were being managed. And I had said to them that, you know, what I think is that they're, they're cycling, but I can't tell for sure because I don't know what their physiology is. But behaviorally, it looks like they're doing everything they should do as far as breeding goes. It just They're just not breeding.
0: So this was
1: kind of a weird moment, and we we were there. They were at the zoo for about a week, um, and then they left and went back to the Smithsonian in uh, D.C. And I went on with my daily sort of process of being an animal keeper and and managing this behavior study. But they they contacted me um, about um, about three months later and asked me if I would be interested in coming to the the Smithsonian um, National Zoo and helping them set up a cheetah conservation center and to head up and continue with the the behavior study, but to add to a physiology component. Uh, and, And I said, as I picked up my jaw off the floor, (laughs) yeah. <laughs> i said sure i'll do that so. yeah and so that's how i ended up at the, the smithsonian national zoo as a as
0: a biological technician initially so there's the job you were talking about originally expecting like oh wow you have yeah. a degree uh we want you right now so there it is just that was <laughs> that was it and And it was
1: completely opportunistic because, you know, it was, I just happened to be the cheetah keeper. And when this group came through, I had no idea that this study was even going on until they contacted us and said, you know, we'd like to come there and evaluate the cheetahs that you have uh, because we've been doing this survey of cheetahs in North American zoos to see if they're, you know, what's going on with why they don't reproduce very well. So I just happened to be the, the person that was the, the point person to bring the cats up to them to our veterinary staff to do the physicals and i just had a chance to tell them what you know this behavior study they've been working on on my own and you know it would be nice to figure out how we could see what's going on with their physiology well the smithsonian had already uh, one of the researchers that worked there had developed these um, what's called an assay it sounds funny because it's working with fecal samples but
0: But they developed a not all assays, not all assays. (laughs) No, not all. But but I I, I couldn't resist the pun. But they, uh,
1: (laughs) but they had developed a technique for determining the estradiol uh, in the fecal of these animals, uh, many animals, including cats. And so they they were interested in in uh, collecting the samples. And, and since I had already had a behavior component, we, we collected fecal samples in conjunction with those behaviors. So now I was able to actually look at behavior along with the physiology and see whether or not these animals were cycling and compare that to the behaviors that I was seeing to determine if the behavior I was seeing was, a, was an estrus behavior.
3: Wow. So you finally had like all the tools. or the other research to combine with your research?
1: Uh of, yes in a bigger picture. Yeah. and yes and and we could see if this you know the the population was in fact cycling how often it did cycle and you know other things were in were impacting that too such as you know their proximity to males and their proximity or nearness to other females would shut down their cycle sometimes so because we put that that study in place we were able to see what management did. To these animals. And then learning the behavior, um, seeing behavior would tell us that, you know, what was going on physiologically. So you didn't necessarily have to do these kind of expensive um, repro assessment techniques uh, to, to determine what management strategy you should apply to these animals. Sounds uh, more efficient, definitely. Yeah, and the, and the kind of funny thing is that, you know, zoos had been managing cheetahs kind of like cat lions, and you guys probably know that lions live in these groups called prides. A lot of people know that, where there's a couple of males and then this group of females, right, maybe mm-hmm. up to 20, um, and that that group of males is the parents of all the cubs of that, that group. Um, and they were managing cheetahs much like that in zoos because there really hadn't been a lot of natural history studies done on cheetahs. It was one that was started in, uh, in 1986 by Tim Caro, and he he did an extensive study of cheetahs in the wild. but you know up until then, there wasn't a lot known about how cheetahs lived in the wild. and what we found out is that cheetahs are different than the other cats. Mm-hmm. They are social. there's only two social species of cheetahs. I mean, of cats, and that's lions, and the other one is cheetahs. Most, all other cats, except for feral domestic cats, are uh, are asocial. They're they're solitary in the wild. You know, wow. So, but then the assumption was, well, the sociality of cheetahs must be the same as lions. So they when they got cheetahs into zoos, they managed them like lions, which was, you know, you keep females in with males and if they if they are ready for breeding then the males will just breed them. You know? That wasn't
3: the case, was it?
1: No, because the in the wild the sociality looks the same from from a distance, but if you were to if you were to view it spatially, you know, the coalition or the group of males that lives with a group of females, if you take that and just you know, come down from the, the top and just pick out a male and a female of that group, and you put it in a setting in a zoo. That could work just fine because there's the females don't mind being around the males when they're not receptive for breeding. But the <laughs> cheetahs, they just they will just bat them in the face if they're not ready for breeding, right? But but cheetahs are, you know, the males live in these groups called coalitions. So that automatically kind of looks like lions because they, you know, lions live in coalitions too. But the females are solitary, and they, they roam a home range, whereas the male hold a territory that's kind of within home range of several females. So if you take that and you go down and take, grab a male and female of that setting and put them in a, in a managed care setting, now you've got these two animals that wouldn't really not want to be near each other unless they're receptive for breeding. You put them in a situation where they're completely stressed. So it's just an insight, you know, gives you an insight as to how important it is to understand the sociality and the behavioral ecology of these animals that we care for in the zoo setting. Right.
0: That's good. (laughs) (laughs) We're stepping on each other's toes right here. (laughs) But I was just going to say that that's a perfect example of like how, even though it's removed from the natural setting or natural circumstances, you know, even applying what you think is true based on those natural circumstances and studying the response really is like, it is adding to the field as a whole. It's, you know, it's not like this devastating thing. It's like, you really are performing research that has not been done before and really kind of changing the whole framework of how things are managed. So that, that, that's really cool. Uh, and, it's, and another interesting thing about that is, that, you know, Zeus had said, well,
1: if they're not acting like lions, we'll just, we'll just change their behavior so they do act like lions. And so, so they, you know, they would try and, you know, house a male and a female cheetah together. And and raise them as young up as young so that they were, you know, comfortable being around each other. So it's not a scientific approach, right? Yeah. So managing yeah. animals, but in some cases it would work. Uh, and that's one of the one of the inherent problems of not having a science based program in place because you end up with these anecdotal successes. Um, and there's a, a writer called Thomas Kuhn, you know, paradigms, something who defined paradigms. But he also said that in the absence of a paradigm, that is a rule of thumb, if you will, every success is, a, is considered a paradigm. So if you don't know exactly why you got a success, but you got a success, or you haven't defined success as, you know, something following the, a a specific approach that is species specific, then however you got to the goal, if you say the the goal is to have cubs and you figured out a way to get cubs that nobody else had done, but it had nothing to do with how this animal lives your method is going to be the one that's considered successful because nobody else has anything, you know, dissenting of how you approach that you define success as cubs you don't define success as you know, following a specific sociological approach that results in successful reproduction.
0: That makes sense. Right. I'm sorry, what were you going to say? No, go ahead, Chris. No, 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 no. I was just saying, like, that is, like, a very important perspective there. What were you going to say?
1: Well, the the hard thing is that when you try and introduce science-based studies to an anecdotal audience, they don't like to retreat from what they've considered success, especially if success is defined as I can sell these cubs for $30,000 each.
0: Right. So, but so like as someone who, who's like opposed to that and then in, in the position uh, that you were like, how did things transpire at that point? Well,
1: um, I wasn't at, at the, When I got to the Smithsonian, I was in a better position to develop the kind of enclosure that was more um, uh, specific for cheetahs. So I had an opportunity. They didn't have cheetahs when I got to the Smithsonian, so I had to I had to acquire them. But because of that study and uh, the the research that I mentioned by about uh, Cheetahs in the Wild by Tim Caro, I knew more about the sociality of cats that, you know, males do live in these coalitions together, usually they're brothers. And they they defend territories against other males, but females are isolated sol- solitary and less receptive for breeding. So I was able to design an entire enclosure with that in mind, you know, the sociality of this specific animal. And then I was able to, is, uh, what's BRB mean?
0: <laughs> Come on, man.
1: Oh, be right no, back. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs>
2: uh. Hello. Thank you for listening to part one of the two part interview with Stuart Wells. Stay tuned for part two.